Welcome to the 905 podcast. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. We've been wanting to record an episode on Ontario's healthcare crisis for a while. It seems that there's not a great controversy about the fact that there is a crisis after all, and a worsening one at that. Uh, only really the most loyal of PC partisans and MPPs would really pretend otherwise. The stories of closed emergency rooms, hallway medicine and massive staffing shortages seem like a daily occurrence in the news, to the extent that a state of perpetual public healthcare decline can seem like an inevitability. But if there's one thing that unites the vast majority of Canadians, it's a belief and support for our public healthcare system. We may disagree about the best way to make it work, but there is broad consensus among Canadians that they want a public healthcare system that does work. So why do we have governments who appear to be working in precisely the opposite direction? In the months ahead, we'll be looking at particular areas of the healthcare system in more detail, but today we thought we'd start with a 10,000-metre overview of the entire healthcare system with Natalie Mera, Executive Director of the Ontario Healthcare Coalition, and ask her what created the current crisis in Ontario and where we should be looking for answers. Natalie Mera has been Executive Director of the Ontario Health Co- Co- Coalition for more than 22 years. She has built the Health Coalition into the largest and broadest public interest group on healthcare in the province, representing more than 750,000 Ontarios in its network and more than 400 member organisations and more than 50 local chapters. During her tenure, the Ontario Health Coalition has won public interest amendments to every piece of healthcare legislation introduced in Ontario in the last 22 years. That sounds like a good place to start. Welcome, Natalie Mera, to the 905 podcast. Uh, you're the executive director of the uh, Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, thanks for joining us so much today. Oh, thanks for having me. So it's, uh, you know, what we're going to be speaking about today is, is kind of uh, an unwieldy and huge subject, which is the crisis in healthcare, which, which, which I think, I think, or certainly most listeners to our podcast, I think will probably agree that there is a crisis, um, but it's, it's almost a matter now of like, where do you start in terms of, of where the, the different elements of the crisis kind of lay in and what needs to be addressed first. But um, uh, perhaps you could, you know, kick off just by, by giving us, you know, your take on the current state of healthcare in Ontario and, and what's going on? Well, I think, I mean, end to end, really, we have, the health system is in crisis. We've never seen anything like this. And it's because there really is no care without staff. And there's a staffing crisis, the like of which we've never seen. Shortages in every sector. Hospitals have the most dire staffing shortage ever in history, 158 emergency departments have temporarily, or 158 emergency department closures have happened across Ontario over the last year. That has never happened. Three would be shocking. 158 is just, has never ever happened in the whole history of Ontario. Um, So that puts it in context. In long-term care, same thing, critical staffing shortages to the point that care that is needed by these frail elderly often residents just can't be provided home care in such critical so that's home visiting nurses and PSWs 
such critical staffing shortages that the people being referred from hospitals for home care, up to 50% of them in some regions cannot, they, they, they are not taking the referrals even, they can't provide the services. Really the worst staffing shortages we've ever seen. And that means basic care can't be provided to Ontarians. Something has to happen and really nothing is happening to resolve it. Now, this staffing shortage, I mean, I, we've all heard uh, stories about the, the burnout for nurses and doctors and long-term care uh, support workers uh, due to COVID, that the pandemic, just the long hours, the stress, the the, the risk to life uh, has just burnt out the, the, the workers. Is that in fact the, the case or is there maybe a little bit more to uh, to the staffing shortage that we're seeing? Well, see, Ontario has had, um, prior to the pandemic, we had under the Liberal government, well, so it really goes back to the Harris government of the 1990s, massive, massive, massive hospital cuts. About 18,900 hospital beds were cut in Ontario. Half of the chronic care bed capacity, what's now called complex continuing care, but those are the longer term beds for mostly seniors and people with chronic illness and so on. Half of, literally half of them were cut and a third of the acute care beds were cut. And then that total of hospital beds was kept low. I mean, you know, little bits of opening up here and there, but never, those cuts were never reversed. And as the population has expanded and aged, that has never been reversed. So Ontario, and then the liberal government, sorry, came in And after the first few years, um, sort of around 2006, they engaged in a decade of austerity, cuts to public, to the public sector. So, um, you know, holding hospital budgets at 0% increases year after year after year, and so on. And so that was to force them to downsize their services, to privatize and downsize their services. And then they opened it up starting in 2016, started to refund and so on. And then the Ford government came in and brought back in real dollar cuts in. So that's, you know, keeping uh, funding at less than the rate of inflation, let alone population growth or aging in 2018, when they took power, we entered the pandemic with the fewest number of hospital beds of any province in Canada. I mean, the fewest by a long shot. We're 14,000 hospital beds below the average per capita number of hospital beds of the other provinces. And among the entire OECD, so every sort of nation with a developed economy, um, we are third from the bottom. Only Chile and Mexico have fewer hospital beds per person than we do. And of course, the crisis that we have seen in our hospitals was terrible before the pandemic. People waiting on stretchers and hallways, in sunrooms, in you know, every possible space they could put them. And what that means is there's no staffing for those patients. There's, you know, the, the nurses then have to stretch themselves to cover more patients without the funding and so on. And, um, and, you know, that's the hospitals, but you could sort of, you could replicate that across long-term care and home care. I mean, that's what's happened. Ontario funds healthcare at among the lowest rates of all the provinces. We're like third from the bottom, second from the bottom, et cetera. Uh, We fund our hospitals at dead last in the country. And all of that has been about downsizing and trying to privatize um, healthcare. And so then the pandemic hit, we had no surge capacity, zero. And 
we had this unprecedented international crisis. And so the existing staff have been, they've lost their vacations, they've been redeployed, they're doing ICU work and things like that, that they've never done before. They're traumatized by all the death and loss in long-term care and in in hospitals. Um, And those that could retire have retired. They have left. People have gone for early retirement. They've left for other sectors in the thousands. And this is is how we got to where we're at. You mentioned how the, the, you know, the drive that everyone's talking about nowadays is the drive towards privatization. We're hearing that, uh, you know, the current Ford government is talking about providing uh, uh, more, more surgeries in private clinics that apparently will be paid through OHIP uh, dollars. Um, but the question I have is just, it, it's, it's like a shuffling of resources. I don't, I'm not, I'm, maybe you can explain to me the rationale behind it, but if we're still paying OHIP dollars to a private clinic to provide knee and hip and, and joint surgery or, or cataract surgery, that kind of stuff. Um, how, why, why does the private sector uh, provide a better or a, a solution to this if it's still coming out of public funds? I, I'm well, not yeah, quite getting I mean, that. The private sector absolutely doesn't provide a solution to this. In fact, every hospital in Ontario has operating rooms that are closed for weeks or months at a time or even permanently due to underfunding. Mm-hmm. The facilities exist. There's no reason for us to pay now to recreate them only owned by private for-profit entities. And virtually every hospital will have, large hospital, will have one, maybe two ORs operating on the weekends for emergencies. They run their ORs from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. They're closed in the evenings and on weekends because they would need the funding and the staffing to run them, right? Mm-hmm. So private mm-hmm. clinics don't create new staff. They don't create new funding. They take funding away. They take the existing staff away from the local public hospitals to serve the private clinics. There's no solution there whatsoever. There's one workforce. A nurse is a nurse is a nurse. If she's working in a public hospital or she's working in a private for-profit clinic, the difference is that the private clinics only take the profitable surgeries. They only take the well patients, the people who can walk in and walk out for a seven-minute cataract surgery. They want high volumes. They want um, easy patients. They're not going to take people who are attached to all kinds of tubes or people who are obese, have diabetes and COPD and heart arrhythmias who might code on the operating room table. They take the profitable surgeries and the staff and the funding out of the public hospitals. That would be damaging at any point in time in in this province, in this country and anywhere else. But at this point, when we have the most profound staffing shortages we've ever seen, it will be devastating. It will be devastating. It will mean that those people waiting for cancer surgeries, the more complex surgeries, people who have comorbidities, have dementia and need surgery, you know, who the private clinics are not gonna serve, they're not profitable, um, will be left for with a public system with much less staff and money to provide for them. And at the same time, the for-profit clinics actually do charge patients. You know, they actually do illegally, you know, charge patients for a whole array of things and they sell add-ons and it's like snake oil salesmanship. You know, they tell people you need an extra eye measurement test for your cataract surgery. 
it's $200 a person. Well, those are completely unneeded tests. The OHIP covered test has shows the same efficacy. It has, there's no added value for doing that. But if you have a thousand patients and you charge them all $200, that's 200,000 extra dollars of income a year. In, in addition, they're charging people outright for the surgeries and the diagnostic tests. Illegal in Canada, the Canada Health Act says all medically necessary hospital and physician ser services, that means your surgeries, your diagnostic tests are covered. That's what we won when we won public Medicare in this country. And the, yet we've phoned every private clinic in the country multiple times. We've posed as patients. We've said, you know, we want to get a cataract surgery. We want to get a shoulder surgery. And we've caught the majority of them, not some small portion, the majority of them charging patients for the surgeries. Outrageous prices, like four, five, 10 times the OHIP costs for those surgeries out of pocket, mostly to elderly people who need those surgeries, who then have to scramble to try and find the thousands of dollars to pay for them. It's outrageous. So not only do they not solve the problem, they bring a whole host of new problems. So a couple of things coming coming out of that, I guess. I mean, if, if, if private surgeries are acting illegally, um, I guess, you know, you can highlight things, but one of the, one of the most frustrating aspects of all, of all this is that although there seems to be a widely acknowledged crisis in healthcare and and pressure to kind of move towards uh, the private sector, the kind of level of public outrage at this isn't matching what well, it isn't what I feel it should be. I mean, uh, you know, if if people are acting illegally, how is that allowable? Why why is no one going in and and suing these people or you know calling the police on them uh it, it it seems to be a disconnect between facts that people that they're uncontroversial about the current state of healthcare and the level of kind of public outrage at it uh why do you feel that is i think there's two things at work one is that for almost an entire generation we have been trained into expecting diminishing um services um, you know, Canadians have been told repeatedly that healthcare is eating up the provincial budget and things, even when healthcare is declining as a proportion of the provincial budget, or, you know, in Ontario, that hospitals are too expensive, even when we fund them at the lowest rate in Canada and have the fewest beds left of any industrialized country. I mean, it's just a propaganda campaign that has been that is about winning tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporations and cutting public services to provide a market for privatization. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but I mean, we've watched it unfold before our very eyes and that's what's happened. It right now around the Ford government's plan to now privatize the deeply, you know, the core services of public hospitals really sort of you know, if you think about it, the Mike Harris government of the 1990s, the conservative government in the 1990s, and I say this in a nonpartisan way, I mean, we just tell the truth and people vote how you want, but, uh, but they privatized home care, and it's been a disaster ever since. They privatized, they handed over the majority of long-term care to for-profit companies, and we all saw what happened with that in the pandemic. It was just, it's been a horror show. And now the Ford government is coming to privatize the hospitals. That's what's happening. For us at the Ontario Health Coalition, we're getting volunteers in droves. I mean, people are upset about it. We're hearing from it. I was at a public meeting in Chesley, Ontario, 
you know, four or 500 people out in this very small town in the, in the West of Ontario towards Lake Huron. And as soon as anyone mentioned fighting the privatization of the hospitals, the entire audience erupted into applause. You know, these are conservative communities. They don't want their hospitals privatized, but people don't know how to fight back. They don't have a way yet. So we're working to provide a way. We're going to actually hold a citizen called referendum, a citizen run referendum to get people to vote against it en masse across Ontario. But they need a way to kind of fight back. And they also just need to know that their expectations that their hospital services would be there and that they're not too expensive. Of course, we can afford them. You know, richest country, one of the richest countries on earth at one of the wealthiest times in our entire history, we can afford these things. And anyone who claims otherwise is really saying it because they want to see them downsized and privatized. It, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's a narrative that we just heard since the 1980s, I feel, that that, that for some reason we can't afford what our parents could afford. Yes. So, so universal health care that our parents paid for. And sure, you know, science has developed and there's, there's new treatments now that didn't exist in the 1950s. I get that. But we're, in, you know, we can afford to have three cars per family or we can afford to pay the gas to drive 50 miles a day to work. But our society can't afford to provide a basic level of decent uh, health care to, uh, to people who, are, who need it. It's infuriating. And actually, I just want to, you spoke already, um, you know, about the, the shortage of staff and I wanted to address just because it's something I've had some personal kind of um, experience of recently the the you know it used to be that that we knew there were GP shortages in rural areas uh, and certainly I've been seeing this year that we're starting to face GP shortages in in the 905 region in the region that we cover and uh, personal experience in Burlington of this of you know a, a, a surgery where a doctor um, basically retired they're not able to uh, that that particular surgery isn't able to replace him, so they basically had to fire or release a whole bunch of patients. Um, and uh, you know, some of those patients are very, very uh, you know people who need a lot of healthcare, and they're basically finding the situation of they go to a surgery and say like I'm looking for a doctor, and when they find when the the potential new surgery finds out that person's medical history, they say things like, well, we're not um, really qualified to handle your case, which makes no sense to me because a general practitioner is a general practitioner. But, uh, you know, people are being denied GP uh, uh, access, people in, in deep and severe need of, of, of health care, uh, of access to a GP being denied it on the basis that they're too sick. Is this something that you're familiar with or you've come across at all? Yeah, yes, I have. And actually, there is a sort of rule in, in the College of Physicians and Surgeons that um, physicians are not allowed to kind of cherry pick their patients that way. But of course, I mean, what's a patient going to do, make a complaint and force a doctor to take them? How, you know, for, for good reason, they're going to be yeah. reticent to do that and or reluctant to do that. And uh, it's a it's a problem. I think more the problem is just that so many people have retired coming out, you know, as we're in the pen with the pandemic continues and, uh, and we have a shortage. There are all kinds of nurse practitioners in Ontario who are trying to practice, who could practice in clinics and community health centers or nurse led clinics of their own and do 
that kind of medicine is called primary care, kind of the front door of medicine can be provided by a family doctor or nurse practitioner. And the province is not providing them a way to be able to bill OHIP or have salaries to be able to do that. So instead they're setting up private clinics. One solution would be for the province to actually allow the nurse practitioners um, salaries, uh, you know, hopefully salaries and not fee for service, but to actually provide those services. Um, and then the other is to expand the community health centers because that helps to bring physicians and the team of practitioners together so that you can have social workers do the social work part and physiotherapists do that part and doctors do the doctoring. Actually, funny enough, it was one of those surgeries that, that this problem arose from. But that's by the way, because I'm a huge fan of that model. And, and mm -hmm. it's a model that I've actually benefited from myself as familiar with it in Britain, rather than the kind of independent GP. Yes. But, um, and, and yeah, I mean, an absolute, um, you know, in terms of things like uh, providing for uh, men more mental health support, that model was fantastic, because it means you can, like you said, you can have a social worker on staff and um, uh provide services that, that, that otherwise aren't available in the community. In a, it, but they're also faced with a dilemma of, of, of uh, as I understand it, actually, that, that if you're a GP and you, you, um, you're looking for a job uh, and you can go to a, a, a family health team or you can set up on your own, under a family health team, you, could, you end up earning less because from your budget, comes all these costs that you're supporting social workers or dietitians or these other great things so you're actually going to earn less as a gp through that model is that i've heard that suggested is that is that true i'm not sure if that's true or not see <clears throat> there are different models community health centers are actually local agencies they're not for profit they have elected community boards okay. and the physicians are on salary that's different and then the they work in the, the full team, like a much broader team than the family right. health teams. Okay. The yep. family health teams are groups of physicians. They may have some, they'll have some other types of health professionals, but not the full range of them. Okay. And it's kind of a group practice. And then <clears throat> how they fund their group practice, you know, is partly decided by the doctors and partly decided by the funding formula. And there's kind of an array of funding formulas from the province. So I think the real issue is we have a shortage of physicians to some extent, and um, we have sort of patterned the number of physicians on a kind of old fashioned idea of physicians. You know, physicians work different hours than, you know, their grandfathers would have uh, and so on. And so that's part of part of the issue. And so we just have a shortage all around. But we do have these, un, you know, these people who are not practicing to their full potential, who exist, they're out there, they could do it, but they have no way of doing it. And I think that, you know, we should demand of the Ford government, how is it possible that you have all kinds of people who can't access primary care, they can't get a family doc, um, and you won't allow the nurse practitioners a way to practice and provide that care for them? That's ludicrous. So I guess the question that, I mean, all of our listeners who are listening to this episode right now are, are wondering, well, how do we fix this? And it sounds to me that what we have in the public sector side of things is kind of this patchwork quilted model of service of family health teams, community care centers, um, and specialty uh, 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 doctors all getting paid in a different formula 
which some are more appealing than others, some are less. So the question, I guess, is how, you know, how do we fix this? How do, you know, it, it, is it, is the public sector so broken that we need to scrap and come up with something new or is it a matter of readjusting resources? You know, people want to know like, how, how can we fix this mm-hmm. system so that the, the health that we, the health treatment that we need when we need it is available and that we are paying uh, out of pocket. Yeah. Well, we've covered kind of a lot of territory. So I think if, since we're focused mostly on what's called primary care, like family Mm -hmm. doctors and nurse practitioners and so on and hospital care, I'll stick with those in answering. I mean, the responsibility for planning and delivering healthcare is the responsibility of the provincial government. There used to be an agency called Health Force Ontario, which is an agency of the Ministry of Health that was responsible for health human resources. When the Ford government came in, they rolled that into their new super agency and it no longer exists, but it's their job to do this. Given that it takes a long time to train family physicians, we need to increase the number of family physicians and it it takes a long time to train them. So in the interim, we need to create teams that can provide that service all put together, right? They can make the family docs that we have sort of stretch out by having the physio part of it done by a physio, having the you know nurse practitioners work to their full potential and so on, so that people can get access to that. That would take a government that is actually you know concerned about and dedicated to planning to provide the healthcare that people need. And we're going to have to force the Ford government to do that because they are not. You know they are interested in cutting the public service and privatizing it. That's what they're doing. There is no private option for for family docs, you know, at the moment we have these virtual clinics where they're charging people for access to doctors illegally. Again, you cannot charge in Canada for access to a doctor. If your listeners are paying, they should be making complaints to the College of Physicians. They're not allowed to do that or make complaints to us because we're going to levy a major complaint to the federal government. Nobody should be paying out of pocket for access to doctors. Um, but uh, but that they're allowing, you know, um, Maple, which is a for-profit, and these other companies mm-hmm. to do this online. And they're growing the market for them by not providing the access in the public system. And so we're not certainly not going to complain about a patient accessing where they can. But the solution is to provide access in the public system. And that means building those clinics, team-based clinics, and um, supporting the nurse practitioners and Um, expanding the number of family doctors. And in the hospitals, I mean, if they just ran the existing operating rooms for, you know, two to four hours more per day, it would be a matter of months and all the backlogs would be cleared. You know, they need to get the staff back. Well, the Mm -hmm. government has put a wage cap on the nurses and the health professionals and, and they lost in court. The court ruled that that wage cap was unconstitutional So, I mean, these are the people who've literally risked their lives to the whole pandemic. It's just a Mm -hmm. slap in the face to them. They need to stop fighting to keep the wage uh, cap on. Yeah. That's ludicrous. I mean, that's minimum. I I can't believe there is a lot of outrage about that. Yeah. Um, it's just and, ridiculous. And this is, for listeners, this is a recognized model of, of the provincial government. They did it to yeah. the too. 
um, that you 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 do something illegal and then you spend a decade working out in the courts and then um, and we're teachers, paying we're paying yeah. for these court challenges with our money that should be going to ameliorating healthcare. It's just ludicrous. So there's an array of things they could do to bring staff in to deal with the staffing shortages. And, you know, they should be doing those things. And we wouldn't need, I mean, why? Well, we never need for-profit clinics. We have hundreds of public hospitals across Ontario that are underused. I have, I just have one follow-up question I want to ask, and I'm going to play devil's advocate uh, here. In any model, is there a place for a private sector uh, uh, chat, like a component to the healthcare system? Because we hear that you know we need we do we did have some private sector uh, influence or, or not influence but just components of it prior to the Ford government so it's not completely new to us but I'm wondering you know what it, it, it we I you know is is that something that we should be considering just in terms of expediency and in terms of effectiveness to uh, uh, to to people um, I, I just put it back to you to see if that's a that's a possibility yeah. Well, I mean, we're not, certainly not talking about publicizing every single health service, but I mean, the systems that provide care that are for the elderly, for the sick, for the dying, you know, are supposed to be based on providing care that people need. When you introduce the idea that you're trying to make money off of people in that situation, what you're talking about is taking money out rather than putting care in. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You're always in a kind of conflict of interest there. Home care that is run for profit has taken the money out of the staffing for home care. I mean, the vast home care is provided by nurses and PSWs and health professionals. Um, Long-term care has taken their profit out of the staffing that provides care. For-profit hospitals and clinics take the money out of extra billing patients who need services and out of um, replacing better trained staff with lesser trained staff. That's what they do. Um, And so, no, it's not in the public interest to do those things. Should we publicize every pharmacy in the province? Well, no one's saying that. You know, should should we take all doctors and put them on salary? Well, you know, that would not be possible and no one's really calling for that. You know, what we're calling for is a growth in the parts of medicine that work the best, like like team-based approaches. And yes, community governance and community control over them, which means public control is better. There's no question. But, um, but you know, I, I think sometimes the, um, and I'm glad you asked the question because it gives a chance to answer. Sometimes the advocates for um, privatization try to paint the people who are advocating not to lose the public healthcare services that we have right now as if there's some kind of drive that is anything other than practical and pragmatic and in the public interest. And that's really not what it's about. It's based on seeing what happens in the United States and where they've introduced privatization in Canada. Uh, and responding to it. Governance that is in the public interest without taking profit out at the expense of patients is better. And that's what we should do. I, I, I could speak also about, you know, in the UK, that the, although the UK NHS in some ways is much more comprehensive than the Canadian healthcare system, it also, there also is a, a, a parallel private uh, healthcare sort of available to people, mm-hmm. uh, which was 
you know, not helpful, let's put it that way, because the people who are making decisions about the NHS generally don't use it because they're wealthy uh, politicians. Uh, but the other thing was the private-public uh, private partnerships was, was something that, that the, the Labour Party in Britain under Tony Blair was very keen on, and were just a complete disaster. Total disaster. I mean, just a, a, a fast, like, catalogue of disasters um, of, you know, and it's like, well, if ultimately you pay the same amount for the, for the same treatment anywhere in the world, I mean, ultimately it costs so much for, a, to, to be, to use a stupid example, it costs so much for a bandage wherever you are. If you then say, well, we're going to give 25% or 50% of the cost of that bandage to a, to a for-profit company, well, obviously that bandage is now cost, going to cost 50% more. It's like the math is not complicated. <laughs> well, it's one, of those, uh, it's one of those things that we saw during the COVID, pande COVID pandemic here. For years, the long-term care homes were being stripped of resources and staffing and staff were paid as bare bones as possible. And we saw what the consequences of that were. I always looked at a human beings are poor investments. <laughs> like if you're looking for a business model, we, we're a very poor investment, especially as we get older, because we just require so much more uh, specialized, costly treatments. Like just, if you want to maintain, not, I'm not even talking about uh, uh, care, just, you know, just, or, or sorry, cures for disease. I'm just talking like a quality of life care, you know, just the the surgeries and the the apparatus that are sometimes required for people is to live. We're, we're costly investments, and I don't see how I never understood how you can make a profit in in there unless you're going to charge a lot and offer the bare minimum. Possible. Exactly, like in long term care, as you're saying, seventy percent of healthcare costs are labor care. Mm. The conditions of work are the conditions of care. That is the bottom line. And so when they look to make room for their 15% profit or whatever it is, look at long-term care. The for-profit homes have a more precarious workforce, so more part-time casual staff. They have significantly lower wages. They had much worse staffing shortages, much higher death rates in the pandemic, and much poorer outcomes long before the pandemic. I mean, all the way through, much poorer outcomes because they take their profit out of the staffing. That's the bottom line and out of the care. And I think as Canadians, like central to our belief system, fundamental to us, it's what makes us different than the United States is the idea that we take care of each other, that care is based on our medical need and not how rich we are. And that that care is provided in the public interest. And as we turn these services over to private for-profit companies, like if we allow the Ford government to turn our public hospital services over to private for-profit companies, we will not be able to protect those fundamental values of equity and compassion that are, are, are the thing that I think we're all so deeply proud of as a country. Um, and it just won't be possible. And do we, can we go back? Well, we try to roll the long-term care industry back to, to public after the military exposed cockroaches and people dying of dehydration and starvation in 2020 in Ontario, Canada, you know? And the government actually, the Ford government is giving the majority of 46,000 new beds, 30-year licenses for them, to 
the for-profits. And in fact, the chain company that has won the most of them has the highest death rates in the pandemic. How could that be? I mean, it's so hard once they're in to get them out again that we just can't let it happen. We can't. It's fundamental to who we are as a people, I think. Yeah. I, I, I Once again, you know, the, 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 the level of outrage that we should have, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to maintain the level of outrage necessary when you hear that. Um, and, and again, I'm just going to throw in an anecdote of my own just, just for the hell of it. And, and it's not Canada, it's from another, it's, again, it's from Britain, but just my own family experience of private, of for-profit versus non-profit, actually both outside the NHS, but a for-profit uh, long-term care home versus a non-profit long-term care home. Uh, and shopping around for a place for, for, my, for my mother to go. The worst place I saw, which was literally like a nightmare come to life. Uh, and if you ever visit long-term care, always go without making an appointment so that they don't know you're coming. That's a hint for people ever going into that. <laughs> um, so we did that. Uh, this place was like something from, from a movie of hell on earth. It was just horrendous. It was privately owned. There were uh, Alzheimer's patients just lying in their own uh, urine and goodness knows what else, literally crying out, ignored by the staff. Um, it was also the most expensive uh, place of all the long-term care pl- wow. places in that, that region. Um, uh, and the nonprofit place that we actually went to was was absolutely stellar, absolutely fantastic. Could not praise them enough. Was actually coincidentally designed in a way that completely controlled and minimised spread of COVID and other diseases. Um, and it was like night and day. Um, and, and it's like this. It was like a, a you couldn't hope for a better example of the contrast between the for profit uh, mentality and the non-profit or public uh, mentality uh, just uh, unbelievable but but i it doesn't seem like there's an there's i mean obviously we're trying to raise this kind of awareness of this on the, on our podcast and i think we need to come back we could do we're just scraping the surface really today i feel i'd love to come back into an episode on those those illegal charges just so that alone but we could speak about so many other things um i'm happy to i do think if people I do think people are upset and I do think they care. I think the issue is people don't know how to make a change. You know, we have to, I think, provide ways as, you know, our job as the Ontario Health Coalition is to try and provide ways that people can affect these policy decisions that affect all of our lives. I mean, our best plan, we figure, is to there's been no democracy. People have never had a say in any of this. People would never vote to privatize healthcare. It just would never happen. And so we have to try and force democracy into it. And that's what we're we're trying to do. So we're going to try and hold this massive vote. We're going to try and get a million votes across Ontario. People are asked whether or not they want to see the hospitals privatized. That would shake any government if we succeed in doing that. So we'll try that. But I mean, definitely... We, I think people need a way to raise their voices so that it matters. And any of your listeners, I mean, the, the one thing you can do is just email your MPP. You mm-hmm. can go to the Legislative mm-hmm. Assembly of Ontario mm-hmm. website and um, you can, uh, there, there's a list of members that's MPPs, members of the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. 
and you can find your MPP and, and email them and tell them, you know, I mean, if they hear from everyone on mass, it feels like a little thing, but it starts to shake them. You know, it starts to make them think, oh, we better slow down, you know? Oh, yeah. Contacting your MP def definitely works. Um, oh, yes. It, it, it's one of the things. Yeah. The, the <laughs> Joel and I both have some experience of being on the kind of on the receiving end of those letters and uh yeah it works it works do it yeah there's something that drives fear into a into an office worker's heart then all of a sudden seeing a flood of emails coming into their inbox all saying the same thing it's uh it, it does work people believe it or not uh but i do see that our, our time is coming up so i'm gonna say we might have to cut this uh this episode uh well just end it where it ends uh thanks very much natalie for for coming out we definitely want to have you back on to follow up on on that campaign and the uh uh and everything else that you're doing there just to uh because i i don't think this kind of this story is going away anytime soon well thanks very much for having me and thanks for covering such important topics for people thank you appreciate it thanks <laughs>